Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guest today on The Art of Range is Vanessa Prilison. And Vanessa, you can correct me on the pronunciation here in a minute. She's the Rangeland Program Manager for the Pima County Natural Resources Department in Arizona. Uh, we got connected through a conservation grazing symposium at a, a so-called virtual conference uh, with the Society of Range Management this year, uh, where she caught me in the virtual hallway afterward and said, when you mentioned that public land agencies would be looking more and more towards selecting good land managers rather than the highest bidder, I realized we're already in the process of doing that here in Pima County, Arizona. And that intrigued me for several reasons. One is that uh, Pima County is a unique place ecologically and socially. This is the Sonoran Desert. And it's not a location where I would expect county-owned ranch land or a, a proactive grazing program necessarily. Forgive me if that's insulting, but if so, it just reveals my own bias. And I thought this would be something worth talking about for the benefit of others. Um, Vanessa, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And how do you pronounce your last name? It is Prileson, so you got it right. Prileson, okay. Well, I was in Tucson for the first time in my life about 15 years ago, at a meeting of the Rangelands Partnership, which is a, a group of extension range specialists and agricultural librarians that's been coordinated mostly out of the University of Arizona for 20 years. I think I've only been back once, but on that first trip, I arrived a day early and took a rental car out uh, because I had never been in the desert southwest anywhere before and drove out into the Saguaro National Park. I think it's a national park. This was in March, I think, and it had just rained and everything was in full bloom. And it was just spectacularly beautiful. And I fell in love with that desert. Uh, we toured at that meeting. We toured south from there and visited a couple ranches uh, down around Nogales. I think both ranchers had permits on the Coronado National Forest. And then I couldn't believe how much grass there was down there. And it looked a lot different than the Saguaro Desert. And this is one of the few places I've thought I might like to live other than Ellensburg, Washington. Uh, so you're the range program manager for the Pima County Natural Resources Department. And Pima County, I think, encompasses all of that area. I know Nogales is a, a different county, but it's close. And in my neck of the woods, county governments don't have range program managers. Uh, so I've got so many questions I'm not sure where to start, but let's start with this. I've interviewed Richard Knight about the Radical Center, and it seems that you have found yourself somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, what was your pathway to managing a Desert Southwest rangeland grazing program? And then we'll get around to talking about the program itself. Okay, wow. I'll, I will try my best to make this a truncated version of that story. But yeah, you hit it right. I am in that radical center, and I've heard Rick Knight um, give presentations at the Covira Coalition Conference. And really, the Covira Coalition is probably the organization that really um, got me motivated about uh, 
sustainable ranch management and rangeland management in the first place back when I was in high school, I believe. And um, I've, I've been interested in rangelands and more specifically, I think, rangeland raised or grass finished beef um, amidst a conventional ranch setting. And I did grow up in Tucson for the most part. So I'm very familiar with the Sonoran Desert and how it can be so wonderful one moment and then the next season a heartbreak um, with just the way it looks or if it doesn't rain. Um, but definitely mm-hmm. those spring showers you mentioned when those annual flowers come up every spring, it's just amazing um, what it can do. And it's also amazing how it has such a vast kind of high desert grassland um, and semi-arid grasslands spread throughout as soon as you go further south and up in elevation and southeast toward south and southeast towards Mexico and New Mexico. And you see this amazing transition between the Sonoran Desert or from the Sonoran Desert into the Chihuahuan Desert. Um, so there's a lot going on ecologically and uh, throwing in the Sky Island, uh, if you will, mountain ranges that are very iconic here, which are really only the the far, the far flung end of many more of those Sky Island mountains that really stretch far down into Mexico. So growing up amongst all of that, um, I think I just got hooked to wide open spaces, um, and which, um, which a lot of which were composed of working cattle ranches. And I think as a as a high school student. Um, I, well, I grew up a horse crazy kid and then got into working on ranches during the summertime throughout high school and just always kind of wanting that ranch of my own type vision, uh, began that, that had always been in my mind growing up. Um, so I knew my profession had to be something like if it wasn't ranching, it had to be something related to that, but the ecology was really important to me too, and continues to be. So, um, I, Encouraged by my parents, I will say they encouraged me quite a bit to pursue, okay, you know, how can rangelands and their uses be made more sustainable? And um, I actually wound up at Oregon State University and uh, for my undergraduate degree. And um, I was in the agricultural resource economics department to start off with. And they didn't really have exactly a major that taught you you know, how to raise grass-fed beef sustainably, which is what I was really looking for. I got around to that later, but um, so I really started off with kind of a natural resource economics background and water law. And then I discovered that rangeland management was an actual profession and they had a department for that at Oregon State. So I got a minor in rangeland management and that really, that's really the part I loved the most, but I'm glad I also was exposed to that natural resource and um, water law background at the same time. Yeah, I suspect that was good preparation for some of the things that uh, you'd be dealing with. Yeah. And and then after that, I was kind of, after I graduated Oregon State and I loved my time in Corvallis and I really loved the Pacific Northwest, never thought I would come back to Arizona. Um, I just Hmm. was too excited about other things. And I, I really like international travel and living in other countries or at least spending time in other countries where they also have rangelands and agriculture. And, um, but, but anyway, after, after I graduated from Oregon state, I was a little bit of a lost soul. And I, I jumped around to a couple of, uh, ranch apprenticeships. Um, 
one being in the San Luis Valley in Colorado on the San Juan Ranch uh, with George Witten and Julie Sullivan. And that working for them, uh, even just for eight months, was a real eye opener and kind of a, a key year for me. That was 2006, 2007. And um, they run an operation completely on raising uh, grass fed animals now. Um, mm. When I was there, I mean, I learned everything from calving, you know, from calving season, raising calves all the way through until weaning. And then they kept, they selected, um, I think when I was there, they wound up keeping all the steers and heifers from the previous calving year and sold them as live finished animals. And at that point, they were still trying to figure out, you know, what's the best way to do this so we can actually continue to make a living here. And just now that it's been so many years and they've they've had more apprentices since then, you know, seeing them actually move, take that and move forward, they've come a long way since I was there. And it's really cool to see that. So, so after I, after that experience, I think I, I was in my early twenties and I just wanted to be around young people again and not in the middle of nowhere. And I wound up taking a job as a rangeland management specialist with the forest service on the Tonto national forest in Payson, Arizona. Hmm. Um, so that kind of brought me back to Arizona oddly. And that's where my range profession, I think really began from um, an agency perspective. Um, and after six years of that, and during that time, I actually acquired a master's degree in range science at New Mexico State University um, during the time that I worked for the Forest Service, which was really, really, really lucky for me that I got to do that because it meant that um, I could keep that job after I was done with the degree. Um, but, but that degree let me travel to Argentina and learn about rangeland management there with sheep and cattle and really just Get, get to learn the culture there. And I really, really enjoyed it um, and found it difficult to come back. Um, but eventually I finished the degree and I did leave the Forest Service eventually to work on another ranch in Southeast Arizona that also did um, grass-fed beef raising and, and lamb and goat. And that was, I think I wanted to get back to that environment. And so I actually worked on that ranch for two and a half years and had a really overall a great experience, um, before, um, that in 2016 is when I decided to pivot and do something else again. And that's when this Pima County range job came open. And that's how I wound up back in Tucson of all places. And it just seemed to be more fitting. And I just couldn't do all the things we're doing for Pima County and their ranches while I, while I was working for the forest service. I, I, I just, it was just really difficult to implement these programs we're implementing now um, for a federal agency that kind of already had the book written. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I wound up here in Tucson, back in Tucson. How old was the Pima County Range Program when you started? Ooh, I think technically it was 12 years old at that time, but I think, yeah, it was about 12 years old. But I was the I was technically the third range program manager they had, but the first one that came from a rangeland management specialist background mm. with formal education and range management. Mm -hmm. Well, what is the Pima County Range Program? So the Pima County Range Program is nestled within the Natural Resources Division 
of the Natural Resources, Parks and Recreation Department of Pima County, which is one of about probably 30 departments that the county has. So the Parks and Rec Department, that's what we call it for short, they have they have several different different divisions and they not only manage the ranch and open space lands that were acquired, and I'll go over that in a second, but they but other divisions in this department also manage the urban parks that have pools and bike paths. Right. Uh, so we're thrown in with all of that as well. So it's a really interesting combination. But the range program in the Natural Resources Division manages the ranches, 15 of them that were acquired through the Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan implementation process. So basically, the Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan is actually a world-renowned plan. I think world. I'm pretty sure it's internationally renowned. Uh, conservation plan that who, what um, which the purpose of that is to guide land and resource conservation while balancing community growth. Um, and the plan was developed in it started in the late 90s with the listing of the cactus ferruginous pygmy owl, and that was kind of the last straw for a lot of different entities and groups in eastern eastern Pima County, which is mainly Tucson's the main population of Eastern Pima County. And that list, every time a species was listed as endangered, it prevented all sorts of economic development from happening. Um, And so realtors, developers, biologists, and scientists from University of Arizona and ranchers and wildlife advocates, several of those groups, many, many people came together to figure out, okay, you know, how can we how can we make this more efficient? How can we do economic development and not have to have this roadblock every time we want to build something, but yet we still want to maintain open space for wildlife habitat. So they came up with these five elements and I'm really generalizing right now because this took years to develop. Let me, let me hold you there for just a second. You know, every County says they want sustainable land use and conserving biodiversity and habitat, but I think I'm right that not that many counties own significant acreages of grazed ranch land. You, and you may know correct. more about that than me, but is that the case? If that's the case in most okay. cases. It's, I've noticed it's becoming more common for counties to either acquire land or conservation easements on land within the last several years, but it's definitely very uncommon to outright purchase large tracts of land and then try to manage it. So was that approach thought up as part of the Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan or did some of that, was there some history of doing that before the conservation plan? I don't know that there was history of actually outright buying land or buying um, ranch land like that in the past, but I do know that some land was set aside in the past. So I believe, Mm. oh goodness, I think in the night, it was either the 1970s or maybe the 1950s, Tucson Mountain Park which is actually um, adjacent to Saguaro National Park West to the south. Um, It's a very, very popular, large Saguaro Park, basically, Mm. that the county actually owns. But that was set aside decades ago. Um, So that really is one of the only examples I can think of. Hmm. Okay. Now the five Yes. Right. So the Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan is based on five elements. The first is critical habitat and biological corridors. The second is riparian areas. The third is mountain parks 
and recreation. The fourth is historical and cultural preservation. And the fifth is ranch conservation. So the fifth element kind of makes, it makes all the other elements happen in, for the most part. There's a few exceptions there, but mm. so the county, so Pima County also had purchased smaller tracts of land that were, um, there's a few other open space parks or natural resource parks that had been purchased since Tucson Mountain Park and basically pre-Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan days, um, including Colossal Cave Mountain Park on the east side of Tucson and um, uh, Catalina Regional Park north of Tucson. And there's a few other smaller park examples and um, corridor parks that are kind of, they are tracts of land that were purchased to basically conserve riparian areas or um, areas where water flows most of the year. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, part of what I feel like is interesting is that uh, most most conservation groups, I think, had not bought into the idea that there was a choice between cows and condos, and and mostly pursued preservation or various kinds of of non use as the dominant approach to accomplishing conservation. Um, do you know any of the history of, of how they arrived at ranching for land conservation? Because that's that's a an innovative idea for sure. Yes. So back in the late 90s and early 2000s, about the time that the Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan was being, it was evolving really with all these groups. I don't think they came up with the term Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan until they really had all these elements put together. But during that time, a lot of ranches were going out of business or they were selling, they were going out of business and then selling land to develop for development. And lots of people didn't like that. Um, and I saw it happening as a high school mm -hmm. student. I thought, well, why isn't, why, why is this happening? You know, why can't ranchers stay on the land? And so that, that really was a huge catalyst in getting, um, the ranch conservation element, um, added basically. And so, so essentially the county started talking with ranchers in areas where, uh, develop a risk of risk of development or risk of land being sold and then getting developed into either condos or ranchettes was really happening. Um, and so they talked to ranchers in each of those zones and said, Hey, you know, what if we passed a bond? And, uh, I don't know if this is exactly what they said, but, you know, they said, hey, how about we buy your, would you guys be willing to sell it to us, you know, and then still, and then lease it back from us and still be able to run your livestock operation. We need to um, get these tracts of land set aside in order to mitigate for other economic development happening, happening elsewhere because they wanted, the county wanted to control not whether economic development was going to happen, but just where it was going to be developed. So we didn't run out of natural resource areas for all those elements that I listed. Wow. So the purpose of the Pima County Range Program is to put some structure in place to ensure that those other four elements are accomplished through the grazing on county-owned land? Exactly. Yeah. So really, yeah. I feel like the Range Program 
from my perspective, when I first came on in 2016, my immediate thought was, oh, this is like a mini ranger district <laughs> on a forest, except it's not national forest. Yeah, It's a conglomeration of uh, land ownerships. Um, so when the county purchased those ranches, um, and this was in stages, it wasn't all at once. Um, a lot of the time they were purchasing base private property or base private property lands um, that was kind of scattered throughout larger grazing leases owned by state Arizona State Land Department or even the Bureau of Land Management. So we still have a checkerboard kind of ownership um, on each ranch, but several of those ranches are connected. Right. So management occurs in blocks, even though ownership may still be checkerboarded. Right. I'm curious, how has that been received by uh, other ranchers in the area? Right. Because this well, tends to be a pretty controversial <laughs> issue with ranchers. You know, some yeah. of them feeling like doing anything like that is just a creative way of giving it up and selling out. Right. Well, I think, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure all of the ranchers, I wasn't here when, when the sales mm-hmm. were going on. This was back in um, 2004 and 2007, but um, I'm, I'm pretty sure all of them were reluctant to some degree, but I think some really needed the money, you know, that right. would help pay off huge debts um, and would really help, or they could put it back into the operation to make it more, to make it, um, more viable long-term, maybe make it more appealing for new generations to come back to the ranch or to come onto the ranch. Um, so, but, but the, the method for purchasing these ranches, I mean, the County had to make, had to get the money somehow, basically voters of Pima County approved a conservation bond in 2004 hmm. for, many millions of dollars to purchase the first block of ranches. Um, And then they passed another one. They approved another one in 2007. So that's where all the money came from to actually buy these ranches. Mm -hmm. And so now that we have all these ranches um, (laughs) in, in the first 12 years of the range program, I think the majority of the time of the time spent on these ranches was getting to know each rancher, building relationships, learning where the infrastructure was and setting up some sort of monitoring program. And I think all that, all of that happened. Um, but there were definitely, there was definitely some, um, some of those elements maybe weren't done as well because there could have been better communications with a lot of the ranchers. I think, um, depending on, individual county staff, some ranchers may have felt that some of the staff were too aggressive and they mm. wanted to come out to the ranch whenever without notifying them. Mm-hmm. And so when I came on board, there was a lot of mistrust. And so I thought, well, that's when I was really glad that I had had that forest service background. Cause I thought, well, the first thing you do is go out and ride with each rancher or go out and lease visit and kind of see what's going on, you know, start to build a relationship so that you understand what they're dealing with and then start. And then I started Mm -hmm. to just make things a little more structured and uniform and have an annual meeting and and have coordination on when monitoring was going to happen and what we're doing with the data and just transparency like that. And so it was relatively, I I don't want to say easy, but it wasn't that hard to kind of develop a structured program, but I wouldn't have been able to do that without 
my Forest Service background and background of working on those other ranches that I mentioned in the past. Yeah. Yeah. So they needed to know who you were. You needed to know who they were and they needed to know that you knew who they were. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that's not to say that I don't have to regulate it. You know, there are definitely times where I have to say, well, you know, this is inviolate. You, you know, we can't do this project this way. We have to go through the right channels. And they don't like hearing that, but they, in the end, they do respect it. And, you know, it's just, um, I do, that's the hard part of my job. So there are some uh, grazing standards or guidelines that, that those properties are, are held accountable to. What, what do those look like? And how is it different from, you know, what, whatever the status quo is on adjacent commercial ranches? Right. Yeah. Well, so the Pima County Rangeland Standards and Guidelines were developed in 2010. We probably should update them. But, um, but really, that is something that was done very well by the previous um, uh, range staff and their supervisor, who's now since retired, who's now since retired. But they worked with the University of Arizona, um, local range consultants that were connected to the University of Arizona, and other agencies in the area like the Forest Service, and they got input from all those experts and the Arizona Game and Fish Department to put together standards and guidelines such as utilization limits and um, plant community and trend condition and and looking at what's appropriate to have on an ecological site, um, what are some clear lines in the sand that say, hey, you know, this ecological site can't withstand more than this amount of bare ground, for example. So really those guidelines are developed from pretty widely accepted standards and guidelines between mm -hmm. Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management, University of Arizona, and local range professionals, and the mm -hmm. Arizona State Land Department. So, you know, so they look pretty, they fit right in um, and are wide, they're, they're generally widely accepted. Um, so it's not like we pulled it out of thin air and said, oh, you can only do this or only do that. It's all, it's all scientifically based. And it wasn't a wheel that had to be reinvented. Um, they, they had to a little bit because it was at a county level and a whole different ballgame. But the actual ec ecology and monitoring methods applied on the ground were, were and continue to be consistent with what's professionally accepted in the range profession. Mm -hmm. uh, how many... How many, how many, I guess, individual properties and how much total property acreage is involved uh, in this program? So there are 15 ranches and I really should say 14 ranches and one farm property. And the acreage composes approximately 200,000 acres, hmm. most of which I would so it's about 150,000 acres of that is state trust land that we have leased, that we hold a grazing lease on, on that respective ranch or, and, or Bureau of Land Management um, grazing leases that we also hold. So we have eight ranches that have state grazing leases and five that have state and BLM grazing leases um, as part, as part of the makeup of the ranch. And then that leaves Two that are just, um, well, we actually, okay, actually it's three that are only composed of literally just Pima County owned fee land. And I assume 
from your question to me, or you made the comment earlier that um, a lot of the ranchers, you know, who had been ranching on that land where the land had been purchased by the county continued grazing on that land, even though they didn't own it. How many, some of those must have turned over by now. And uh, you must be making some decisions about how to bring on, you know, what would otherwise be considered a lessee or a permittee where it's not the person who was grandfathered in with the original transition. Uh, what does that selection process look like? Okay. Yeah. That's a couple of big questions. So yes, right when I came on, I knew that starting in 2018, 2019, I would have to kind of have figured out a system or had some sort of transition process in mind for how to handle this because basically a hundred percent of the ranches were when I came on, so 15 of them were under agreement with the original owners. Mm -hmm. And um, two of those owners actually exited the two respective ranches that they were on Hmm. uh, because they did not want to conform to the county's standards and guidelines. And that all happened before I got here. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So when I got here, um, one of those ranches was pretty small and didn't have any grazing leases attached to it. So that became more of a a property that we don't really use for a ranch anymore just because it's so tiny. Um, So that, that kind of fell off of our ranch list. So, we would have had 16. So really now we're at 15 and the other ranch that was vacated, was pretty big. And we decided to make that and take advantage of the situation and kind of hold on to it and not lease it out right away and make it into kind of a, an education site or where we now have a developing on ranch education program. And I can, that's kind of one offshoot of, or one, yeah, one facet of my program that we're working on. But the transition process that you're asking about, yeah, that's a big deal. So basically what we had to do as the county was work with a few other departments to try to figure out what we could legally do because we can't Mm. just kind of make something up and do it. We kind of have to go through um, the rules that we have through real Some formal process, yeah. Yes. And so actually back in 2018, I started talking with Boulder County in Colorado and um, started talking with them means I emailed somebody there and they they graciously supplied me with some information, but they have this fantastic website where they actually advertise farms that they're leasing out farms or ranches. And so I looked at their program and what they have there uh, North of Denver. And I wasn't really familiar with that particular area, but apparently they've bought up a bunch of, farms and ranches and they lease them out through a request for proposal process. Wow. And I thought we were going to do that. I said, Oh, perfect. Let's just do that. They've already figured it out. Let's just use their process. Well, it wasn't that simple here because we don't, what we have on each ranch, um, what was done originally was a ranch management agreement, which isn't just a lease. It's a stewardship agreement with that previous ranch owner And part of that deal was that, hey, you sell the ranch to us, you get this stewardship management agreement, and you get to run your your livestock operation here under our regulations. And so so basically, we came up with, okay, a ranch management agreement is a hybrid between a lease and a stewardship agreement. So we couldn't just go through procurement through a request for proposal process. 
Um, and I'm kind of glad we didn't do it that way now because we that then it would have had to be have been advertised to the general public, and we probably would have gotten 700,000 responses and had to educate people on what a ranch was because there's lots of different ideas of what ranches are. So we worked with our real property department, the procurement department, risk management, and the county attorney to determine that the ranch management agreements were the hybrid of the lease and the stewardship management agreement. And so what we did is we updated the, the current agreement template, which is really just a painful to read with all the legalese language. And we had to make some changes because some of the ranches have, well, all of the ranches have infrastructure that the rancher or current ranchers didn't want to maintain. And we needed to make it a little more clear in the agreement that if they're going to use it, they need to maintain it, but we'll do capital improvement projects, for example, um, mm-hmm. or do projects that will outla- that, that will outlast their using the ranch. So we had to be kind of meet in the middle there. Um, but what I've also been doing since 2016 is keeping a list of everybody that's ever called me to ask for land to graze on. And I actually get quite a few calls on an annual basis. Just every couple months, somebody calls saying, hey, do you have any grazing leases available? And I'll say, and I had to say no for the first several years, mm-hmm. but I can put you on my list. And I made a distribution list of farmers, ranchers, and agricultural and natural resource organizations. And so putting it all together when we put together an outreach document that describes the ranch or the farm that's going to transition or this rancher or farmer is retiring or they're exiting. This is when it's going to be available and describing it. Now, now I had a way to advertise it to every, any, everybody and anybody that had ever contacted me um, and they got the notice um, and then they could forward it to their friends or their somebody they know. Um, and um, I got, I get a lot of responses <laughs> to those. So basically that leads me to the process that we use. So we had to think about transition situations and we can't, we have probably six or seven different transition situations on each ranch. Hmm. Some ranches, the rancher still owns like the little headquarters that their house is on. Mm-hmm. So could that cause a problem with a new manager because they don't, you know, they might have to crisscross through their property getting to, you know, whatever part of the, you know, the next pasture. So we have a couple situations like that. We have a couple situations where next generation is interested or they're not interested, or we have a situation Mm -hmm. where the rancher just wants to retire and that's it. There's nobody else interested or their employee is not interested. If they have a longstanding employee that's part of the business already, um, we can do an automatic renewal of the agreement to them, um, but only if they have a good history working with us. Um, but so, and actually just yesterday I put out that a new outreach for a farm or one and only working farm that, um, that is going to transition because the current family is retiring and transitioning out. And so we literally are looking for new one or more new farm managers to run their farms there. Um, so that's the first thing we have to do is figure out, okay, what situation are we in? And we kind of made a decision key. So, you know, Mm -hmm. if they want to continue with a ranch management agreement, if they don't want to retire and they just want to continue, um, we just make sure that they're in good standing and that we're ready to work with them again. 
But if they're not, we'll, we will proceed with an outreach to interested individuals, organizations, et cetera, so we can get the word out to the appropriate audience. And then we go through the administ- administrative process. So I make sure my, my distribution list is updated. And then we draft the outreach notice. Um, and anybody who responds to that is invited to the ranch or farm tour, which is meant, which we're making mandatory because they really need to see what they're getting into. Um, then we send out an application packet. We go through an interview process and we have evaluation criteria that are outlined in the application. So applicants know in advance what to expect and what we're looking for. And then we also have evaluation criteria that's specific to the farmer ranch. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the, and then we make a selection based on who we think is the best. It's not, it, it, it's kind of based on the highest score, but it's also based on, it's also, it's really more qualitative. So we want to make sure we have the right person or the right people out there. And then they, uh, whoever that, uh, whoever is selected to be the grazer then also provides the the livestock or their livestock that's owned as part of the ranch program as well. <laughs> that's a good question. I would say, so not anymore. We, we do not own, the county doesn't own livestock in that capacity anymore, but mm. they, essentially all of the ranches that were purchased um, by the county, the livestock stayed under ownership of the former owner. The, they're the first rancher that was on agreement with the county. Right. Um, so really we leave that, if, if that ranch, if the outgoing rancher or farmer has livestock or equipment that they want to sell, they can either sell it, sell it, or they can make a deal with in, the incoming manager. Right. That is fascinating. Uh, I wanted to ask, just in case I forget about it later, uh, that you're you're doing some ranch education with the ranchers that are part of the program. Are you also doing ranch education with people that are not in the program, but whose lands are connected? Kind of. We're not quite there yet with the ranchers that are that are on agreement with us as far as developing a ranch education program with them, like for apprentices to come to their ranch. We're not quite there yet. Um, we have one ranch that's a designated education ranch where I decided to start developing um, that site to be a safe place for basically any member of the public to learn about ranching there. We call it the Bar, the Bar V Ranch. And one of my county staff actually was assigned to live at this ranch when it was vacated. This was one of the ranches vacated mm-hmm. by a rancher that didn't want to um, stick with Pima County. So one of my staff cowboys actually lives there and um, with his family and has spent the last five years upgrading all the infrastructure on the whole ranch, which is mostly state grazing lease that the county holds. And we, about a year ago, we finally were able to purchase 20 mother cows that were bred and they had, and 17 of them successfully had their calves this past fall. And with the goal of that, what the, we call them edu cows or education cows. Mm-hmm. So we actually own those. And so we had the first calf crop on the ground on the ranch for their education program. And we've been working, we've been We've been working with uh, Pima County 4-H program. Um, And so we've had several events out there over the course of the past six months where 4-H kids that are in the beef program or the livestock program 
um, have come out and learned about pregnancy checking um, or they've participated in branding and vaccinating. And finally, we actually had we actually fulfilled the goal of selling some of those calves to these 4-H kids to be their 4-H project steers or heifers. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the end game this year. And that's how we started was with 4-H. But the goal is to make it much broader and reach out to other youth, whether it's on, whether it's from the Pima County community centers where youth often go after school or during the summer, um, or if it's classes that want to come out and do a ranch field trip. Um, I mean, we're really, I'm really open to really encouraging that kind of, that kind of thing in the next stage of our program. Uh, that leads me to ask one thing I wanted to make sure we got to. What do you do f for monitoring? That does seem like one place where you could train some volunteers to assist with that. And I know that's been done some other places and I'm personally interested in, in what other parts of the country are doing for, um, you know, time and cost effective ranch monitoring. So I'm curious what, what methods you're using to monitor success or monitor progress or lack of progress toward rangeland health attributes on these ranches. Right. That's a great, that's a good question. So when I came on board in 2016, the, the monitoring program was actually pretty well established. And so that was a really good thing that happened. So we had long-term transects or key areas um, established on every ranch except for three of them. So I spent my first three season, my first three monitoring seasons, which here we monitor post-monsoon, um, September, mm -hmm. October, November. And yeah, three of those seasons were spent doing inventory transects. So covering the whole ranch on every important ecological site. And we did, I did hire a seasonal, um, I had several, I had a series of um, part-time range specialist um, folks that helped me. And I got a lot of help from inviting the NRCS, the local NRCS office folks out um, that are range managers themselves. Um, so really monitoring has been a team effort for, I think, as long as the, the range program has been in existence. So mm -hmm. when I came on, I also had other staff, um, not under me, but um, coworkers that were more natural resource specialists that would come and help me do this monitoring because I couldn't go out and do it by myself or just with one NRCS person. So often I had two county staff that are knowledgeable about plants come and help me and an NRCS person and the rancher. So we often had five or six people coming. So that's always been getting enough help with the monitoring has always been pretty good. And that's with trend and condition monitoring. Um, so, and now finally, it, and I think if you um, read the part of the white paper that said um, I really needed a full-time assistant, <laughs> well, we, I finally got my full-time assistant last November, and that's been fantastic because now we actually have two full-time people devoted to this because some of the other natural resource staff over the years have been committed to other things. So it has been harder to do other kinds of monitoring like utilization um, and this spring we did drought monitoring. So kind of a modified version of trend monitoring at these established key areas um, and doing some comparisons with remote sensing data. So that was kind of a new thing. Mm -hmm. But again, I could really only do that because I have full-time help now. Yeah. Yeah. What specific methods are you using for long-term trend monitoring? So we're using pace frequency, dry weight rank, ground cover, and sometimes fetch where it's appropriate. 
-hmm. So measuring the distance to the nearest perennial plant. And we're using the 40 by 40 centimeter frame and generally doing two lines of 50. Um, and in some cases, four lines of 50 or two lines of 100, so 200 frames. Um, we've cut it back to 100 because we've found we can basically get a similar result with 100 frames instead of 200. But that's that. those are the methods that work best for us. And we use the, the VGS or the vegetation GIS system, um, the computerized software, the software that we use on a, on a ruggedized laptop to more efficiently record that data in the field so that we can go over the results right away in the field with the rancher. Mm -hmm. So, And that's yeah. per ranch or per ecological site on the ranch? We it, It's per ecological site okay. or per right. key area. Yeah. Um, and when we've done the, in, on the three ranches where we conducted inventory, um, where we actually, you know, established way more inventory transects that we were going to monitor than we were going to monitor in the future, meaning that we would select key areas from those. Right. We, we did perform rangeland health at all of the inventory transects, um, and then I just, you know, whenever, whenever. So this year, for example, this summer, I need to assess. Hey, you know, where should we do rangeland health? Or where are we at the ten? Where are we on the ten year? timeline because generally I understand that you're supposed to do rangeland health assessments about every 10 years. No, that sounds good. I like, I like those methods. Uh, you mentioned, I don't know whether you wrote the paper, but in the, in the white paper that discusses some of the history of the program and some of the current financial needs of the program, uh, you mentioned several economic benefits to the county uh, that were a direct result of, of these conservation efforts. And the first one that's on that list, probably first because it would be pretty compelling to both voters and to county government leaders, is that uh, you can achieve lower flood insurance premiums as a result of uh, these conservation efforts that, that provide increased flood attenuation. Can you speak more to that? Yeah, that's a good, I'm glad you pulled that out of there. It's been a while since I read that detail, but yeah, I mean, basically maintaining ecological function across these vast tracts of land that voters approved to be purchased, um, overall that will decrease runoff if the land is managed properly um, and influence things like, yeah, those those flood insurance rates. Um and so that that's one yeah that's one way to measure um, the value of conservation right in in actual dollars yeah, yeah I was not aware of this community rating system that um, that provides a mechanism to reduce official flood insurance premiums in response to floodplain management and flood awareness education that is really interesting right yeah it is interesting and that. Um, we also have an accompanying, I don't know how common this is across the West, but we have accompanying Pima County. Um, we also have a flood control district that's kind of a, I want to say subsidiary, subsidiary of Pima mm -hmm. County, but they have their own tax income. So right. they, they feel like another county department to me. And I work with them all the time on open space and ranch lands, but, but really they're, they're kind of their own entity. Um, but obviously paired with the county. And so um, 
we often turn to them for funding because <laughs> they have they have their own um, their own tax jurisdiction. Yeah, you the paper also mentions uh, aquifer recharge and that that reduces groundwater pumping costs. Yeah, is that an increase in the? Uh, I guess a, a decrease in the necessary depth of pumping. Yes, I would say yes. That makes sense. Um, yeah, I think my colleague Brian probably included that. <laughs> yeah, if that's generally true. Um, yeah, it <laughs> okay. is true. Tucson itself is in a good spot and the land surrounding it because we do have a pretty good groundwater supply. When this white paper was written, it was much better than it is now because now I'm there's all sorts of reports saying it's going down mainly in areas that have high economic development right now, housing development to be specific. So, which isn't surprising. Yeah. And we just have, we're just yeah. we're in a pretty horrible drought right now, as, as is most of the West. And yeah, um, back when the aquifer did recharge, um, it probably did reduce pumping costs. And we, you know, Tucson has never been completely reliant on um, the central Arizona project water from the Colorado River. And I hope we never are reliant on that because it'll it, it, it's going to be receiving cuts um, pretty soon. And uh, we do receive some of it. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that definitely helps with the groundwater reserves here because we'd, otherwise we'd have to pump more groundwater. Um, but, but then that also makes us reliant on the Colorado. So, yeah. Another interesting uh, benefit that was listed here that reminds me of something I've heard Rick Knight talk about is the increase in property tax revenue in areas that are near this, um, you know, public open space working lands because people are willing to pay more money for those properties in those homes. And that very directly increases tax revenue because it increases the assessed value of the properties. Um, I remember him talking about some of this this margin effect uh, where the properties that are adjacent to um, working lands, particularly in scenic open space, are often tremendously valuable. Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. Um, yeah. And in a place like Tucson, I mean, being even just a little bit closer to one of the mountain parks where you can go out there, take your dog and go hiking. Um, or just, it's, you know, if you're in the city center, it, it kind of takes forever to get outside the city now. And, um, especially when it's hot and it's just, mm. you know, it, it, temperatures are a little cooler if you're closer to open space generally. Um, in fact, my husband and I actually recently purchased yeah. a home on the West side of town, um, still in the city of Tucson limits, but we're 10 minutes from a trailhead. And we're just our overall, I would say our overall happiness has risen. <laughs> um, and it's just so much nicer. Yeah. Um, and it didn't even have to be right next to open space. I mean, there are definitely those, um, but uh, it is, it, it makes life a lot more pleasant. How do these ranch properties or the county, I suppose, handle uh, recreation? Are they considered public lands that are mostly open to recreation? I would assume there's some limits to that. You know, for example, I've seen in Washington state some places where off-road vehicle use just absolutely destroys uh, otherwise <laughs> nice native range ground. Uh, how do you handle recreation? Oh, yeah. Well, I wish I, I wish I could tell you we handle it really, really well, but we really don't. <laughs> or we, you know, the, the, the thought and intention is great, but 
we're just like every any other area. We 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 are seeing an exponential increase in OHV use. Um, you know, controlling access on the the ranches that the county administers. And I say it that way because we we don't own every acre of each ranch or every ranch complex. It's, mm-hmm. it's really difficult because we own, oh, on this parcel, it's county owned, but the next huge parcel is state land. And then the next one's county owned. And it's, you know, so many, the general public just doesn't keep track of that unless they're hunters. Most of the time, hunters are pretty good about knowing whose land they're on. So, but we definitely mm-hmm. have, those few hunters that kind of ruin it for everybody and um, do irresponsible things on the land. But we've definitely seen, yeah, an exponential increase of OHV use and target shooting on county lands, state trust lands. Um, and it's it's really hard to keep a gate locked or to control access. We try, we do have a permitted access point on one of the ranches that does help control the number of people that go in. Um, but it's just so hard to control that and regulate. And, um, yeah, that's, that's probably our absolute biggest challenge right now. Yeah. Uh, last question for you. You mentioned there was a bond to do the initial uh, purchase from the ranchers. Do those have those, what was the, the timeframe on those bonds and is there current money that is available to continue that program, and to what extent are ranchers in the area uh, availing themselves of other conservation trusts or conservation easements, you know, that are maintained by organizations like, uh, you know, say the Nature Conservancy? Right. So, from what I understand, the first conservation bond in two thousand four, um, and I'm sorry, I don't have the number off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, but it was upwards of, I believe it was upwards of a hundred million dollars, definitely upwards of hundred million. I think they are 30 year bonds, but I need to double check on that and I can get you that fact. No, that's interesting. I was just curious, you know, whether that was a kind of a one-time thing or if there's an intent uh, to keep at least the possibility of expansion as part of that program. I see. Yeah. There was that second bond in 2007 that was a little bit less um, money, but they were basically one-time deals when the momentum of the Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan implementation program was uh, um, was still there, and it was still easier to convince voters. Um, and it was true there was a lot there there was a lot of risk to um, ranches and farmland being sold to development, and that's I would say that's still the case. Um, but there's definitely a lot less of a push to put more bonds on the ballot. And when yeah. I when I came on in 2016, there was one more because the county really wanted to purchase the rest of a ranch because they had only purchased some of the private land in it, but mm-hmm. not the not the other land that would make it contiguous, and it failed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's difficult for people to see the benefits of these ranches because they're more remote than, for example, Tucson Mountain Park that's right outside of Tucson. You have to drive a little further. It's people kind of don't really know where they are, and you have to you know, people need really specific maps. And so that's gotten better, um, just communicating to the public what we have, because we do want the public to learn and go to these ranches. We just, but when I came on, there was a lot of mistrust from the ranchers of not only the county, but the public coming onto the ranches. And they thought there was going to be a total free-for-all of the county letting the public onto all the ranches and all their Mm. favorite spots. And 
to their houses and it just, there was a lot, there were right. a lot of misunderstandings, but um, I think the people that really care about the ranch land, they're the ones that call and ask and say, Hey, how can I get to Rancho Seco or how can I get to Sands Ranch? And I can give them a map or point them to the website that has the map and then they can go do that as long as they, you know, follow the rules um, that we have for public access. Yeah, I, I love that. Uh, I thought that was my last question, but it's not. I meant to ask you, what do ranchers who are uh, new to this that are effectively leasing this land, what do they pay for that access or do they not? And, you know, is that like a standard state rate, for example, matching whatever the the AUM rate is on state trust lands, or is it something negotiated? Uh, or is it more of an in-kind trade of, you know, effort on the part of the rancher trading for effectively grazing fees? Right. It's a little, it, well, it was a little of both in the beginning um, with the original 15 ranch agreements. Mm -hmm. um, so basically the rancher is responsible um, for all of the fees that the state land department charged for grazing on the state trust lands, if, if they had a ranch that had state trust lands. So they had to pay all those grazing fees by AUM. So whatever the rate would be and the sublease fee, because technically the county subleases to each rancher on a ranch that has state land as part of the ranch. Um, and so they would have to pay all those grazing fees. The county originally did not charge a fee for any grazing on the county-owned lands, mainly because those lands, they weren't really big enough to have a significant um, grazing component. They were either headquarters right. or they were trap pastures or they just didn't have, um, they were just too small to have really high grazing value. Now we know that's not necessarily true. And some, we do have three, three ranches that are entirely county fee land. They're not super big, but they do consist of a few thousand acres. So with all new agreements, any agreement that has expired, so we've done, we're going to be going on our fourth management agreement that we're either advertising or it expired and we're renewing, um, all of the updating of the template of those agreements is going to include a grazing fee to Pima County for any acreage that has grazing capacity. If there yeah. is no grazing capacity, like one ranch, it's 97% state trust land. And we have a little tiny headquarters that, uh, mm. that our new ranch manager is living on. And so instead of a grazing fee, we're charging a reasonable annual facilities use fee for the, because there's a nice set of corrals, a loading chute, a tack room and shop, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and in some cases, there's a house. So mm -hmm. we do have to charge them some rent, but it's, it's a reduced rent from market rate. Um, and because we understand that there's an exchange of management, so the county basically under, they're not charging a fee, you know, a lease fee on top of everything else. Um, for this ranch to be managed with their cows. Um, this is where the stewardship agreement comes in and the value of that um, is balanced with, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to charge them to, um, you know, buy a piece of land from us for the ranch or to pay us a huge fee every year. We keep it pretty minimal because we want to make it affordable. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a fascinating program. <clears throat> um I'm going to let you go, but I wanted to ask, is there anything that, that you wanted to cover that I didn't ask about before we quit? I guess the biggest detail I missed 
that, that is pretty important is our multi-species conservation plan or MSCP that was actually meant to accompany the Sonora Desert Conservation Plan. And this is this MSCP is what actually implements the biological element of the SDCP. <laughs> um, and that didn't get, that wasn't officially um, implemented until 2016, which happened to be the year I came on with Pete McCaffrey. Mm. And so basically the multi-species conservation plan was a plan that another department in the county wrote our office of sustainability and conservation the biologist wrote this plan and submitted it to the u.s fish and wildlife service to apply for a section 10 permit and i'm so used to hearing about i was so used to hearing about section 7 in the endangered species act Mm -hmm. but they wanted to apply for a section 10 permit basically saying hey we're going to protect these 44 species and there is a list of 44 plant animal species some listed as endangered, some not, that are important, that were deemed important in Pima County um, and saying, hey, we're going to protect all these species by using all these ranches that were purchased and other open space properties as mitigation land for other economic development projects that happen elsewhere in the county. Um, So if this developer develops the shopping mall over here, we're going to use credits from ranch X or from this open space property X that has these particular habitats for these animals. And we're going to use that as mitigation for this project over here. Right. That's a really bad way to explain it. There's a much, Mm. my colleagues over at the other department could explain it much better, but that's the really basic framework of that. Yeah. With that, uh, how is the, owl doing the cactus this pygmy owl <laughs> that took yes. me three years to learn how to say <laughs> i won't even attempt it yeah that's my question yeah the owl is actually doing pretty well i think um in fact it's been it's been detected several times on a few of our ranches southwest of tucson and that's pretty exciting because and again sometimes it's on um state trust land sometimes it's on county land but it's, it's just nice to know that they're there. And um, it's, yeah, it's nice to know that the program seems to be working. Good. Well, maybe next time we can talk about the other 43 species. But for now, Great. I want to thank you for joining me on the Art of Range. And I, I really do uh, love what you're doing. Thank you. It's, it's nice to be able to share what we've been working on here. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. 
The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement.